This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 100. 100. That's a... Yeah, that's the one and two zeros. It's, dun, dun, dun. it's a half wonky. Wow. Well, we did 200 episodes of something wonky. So like... Should we get out the party poppers and, and champagne? We should have been more organised on that front, certainly. No, we did. Didn't you hear them in the audio that was on in the background a moment ago? It like, sounded like party noises in the background? Yes. yes. They, they were great and very colourful. We are all at this party and you can hear it in the background. Listen to it. Hark. Background noise. Especially like this particular song that's playing. It is one of my favourites. <laughs> I particularly like adding challenges to Jeremy in the edit. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I'm going to go find a cat and hang it in the corner with it. That's the best way to be at a party. Cats and small children. I've completely wrecked my opening this week. <laughs> anyway, so, somewhat derailed. Happy 100th. It's episode 100 for Saturday, 27th of July, 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host, or in this case, guest hosts, who have appeared before returning guest hosts, to help discuss what's just been happening in Australia, in Australian politics, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Uh, tonight's guest hosts are returning guest hosts, Denise and Ginger. Welcome back. Thank you. Hello. Uh, now, there's a, there's a couple of exciting, happy things to discuss in Australian politics this week uh, as our polity descends into essentially pre-revolutionary France. <laughs> um, like, just before the revolution. Yeah, yeah, they're sharpening our guillotine. Well, did you see the guy who, uh, for New Start, was sent to, like, a, a work skills thing and learned carpentry, and so he built a guillotine? I wasn't sure if that was just a joke that he'd been sent to the country or whether that was like he had literally built a guillotine at work for the doll. I, even I, if it's I just a joke, I, I like to believe that it's real, even if it is just a joke. But either way, it was uh, spot on. Symbolically speaking, very powerful. Guillotine making is a future-proof skill for, yeah. <laughs> for, 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 for our time. Um, and the two big things in which were essentially let them eat cake uh, were, and let, let me play you the audio of both. So I'll, I'm sure that everybody listening to this has heard both the uh, NIB boss declaring that, it, well, I can't play the audio of that because it was in, in writing the Australian Financial Review, but declaring that we should abolish Medicare, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. And also this one, which I have the audio for, which is Michael McCormack declaring that people on Newstart who can't afford to stay alive uh, should just move into the regions where there are jobs on in-shop windows. Does a new start? It has to be a level where people can at least feed themselves, dress themselves, pay for accommodation. It has it indeed, and it would it be a very meagre existence. But it's only supposed to be a safety net between jobs. There are jobs out there, and that's why I encourage people who who have either slipped through the cracks and they they just can't find work at the moment to look around. There's there's many jobs. You go into into Dubbo. I mean, it's almost full employment at Dubbo, and there's you you, you go up uh, the main streets of some regional towns, indeed uh, regional capitals, and there are notes in the window to say 
job available, you know, apply within. And there are so many jobs, but people have to be able to, you know, have the wherewithal to go to those places and, and have the capacity and, and indeed have the, have the innovative spirit to actually move out of sometimes their hometown that they've lived in all their life and go to a town where there are jobs available. How, how do you encourage that, though? Because that seems... I'm encouraging it, it now. And, and, and look, It's a very tough thing to it, it achieve. Is. You have to have the capacity to move to these towns and the capacity to move interstate or across the state a few hours away when one is on New Start and one is making absolutely nothing per week must be huge. I mean, you can barely afford public transport um, to get to a job interview where you are, never mind packing all your goods up, paying bond at a new place, moving all your goods, applying for the jobs, which may only be part-time jobs at cafes or something you may or may not have the skills for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and keep in mind that if you apply for a job before you move to that town, so if you apply for a job that's not in the region where you live, Centrelink penalises you for that too. So yeah, you can't, yeah. Basically, what he's saying is take a punt, move to Dubbo, trust that there will be some jobs that you can get that you can live on. Because keep in mind, a huge part of their pitch is, oh, no, we've got to create more jobs, by which they mean shitty, poorly paid, below minimum wage jobs is what they want to do. They want um, more work for the doll type schemes, essentially. Yeah, it, with, in, on which you can't live. So, like, they consider it a win if you're doing two jobs. They're like, look, we created extra jobs. People are doing two jobs to survive. Yeah. Like, that's that's their solution. And who know, the jobs advertised in shop windows, um, well, I'm sure they won't be the... Uh, in in, in uh, cafes and so forth, I'm sure they wouldn't be cash cash in hand, under the table, not dodging. And it's not like we see you know, regular prevalent wage theft in that industry. No, no, not run by some of the most lucrative, high-profile restaurateurs in Australia. Also, a lot of these, a lot of that work is part-time work, and one of the big issues that we're working with in Australia is underemployment. So if you do then move to the regional country for a job that's 15 hours a week, possibly one week, 20 hours the next week, 10 the next, how are you then going to pay your rent? How are you then going to do anything? But how, are you, how are you going to find the the bond, the removal costs to move, uh, and then when you take that job, keep in mind the other thing that Centrelink does is as soon as you've got that that job, they then cut you off and then you have to apply again and there's like a six to eight week uh, gap in which they don't back pay you either. So if you take one of these shitty temporary jobs that you can't live on and then they, then they end because the the cafe, oh, there's a minor downturn or there's some the cafe decides not to hold you on. You're in Dubbo then. You don't have family supports. You don't have anyone where you can crash with. You've moved to the country uh, and there's no job there. And, oh, look, you also can't get settling for six to eight weeks. Interestingly, the other thing was, wasn't it just a week or so ago that Barnaby Joyce was saying that Centrelink needed to be, uh, Newstart needed to be increased for uh, people who lived in regional places because things cost more. So it costs more to take transport somewhere, it costs more to buy groceries there, and that it needed to be increased in cities due to the fact that rents were higher. So you have another, you know, Nationals MP saying that Newstart isn't enough for people in, in regional areas. An unlikely champion of new start increase of all yeah. people, Barnaby yeah. Joyce. But glad to have him at the progressive, more progressive side than Labor. I, I did expect. So I wasn't surprised to find Michael McCormack uh, one of the least progressive people no. in the country. Uh, I was surprised to find Barnaby Joyce more progressive than Labor, yeah. uh, but no longer because Labor has, in fact, now supported an inquiry to new start, yes. and they have now <laughs> putting out all the tweets, being like, you know, new start needs to be raised, and how dare the government have stood by against it for those long? And it's like. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Welcome to the party, you know, several months after the election where it's way too late. However, they have said that while they agree it needs to be raised, they said they decide how much it needs to be boosted closer to the next election. 
So they're not saying it needs to be boosted yeah. now. They're not I'm, saying it needs to be raised now. They're saying that, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll raise it, but we'll tell you how much in a few years. So it doesn't matter that people are starving to death now, between now and then. That's It's just about the election cycle. That's all that they are concerned about, yes. their own electability. Yep. It's not... If they'd cared about Newstart, they would have gone to the last election, which was mere weeks ago, with this as a, as a real platform with specific numbers and costings behind it, all of which are, I'm sure, readily available for them to produce. Or they they could have even gone to the election with their inquiry, with their thing. But uh, we are going to initially raise it by, yeah. say, the $75 a week that keeps getting thrown around, $50 yep. a week. But then we're going to do a further analysis of what needs to happen. And maybe the whole center link needs yeah. to be overhauled. But initially, we're going to help those people who are starving yeah, and unable a, to feed themselves. Here's really. a short-term fix, and then we commit to a longer-term, better, better assessment of what we need to do to support our most vulnerable people. Yeah, nobody's pretending that $75 a week is enough. It's $135 a week less than the poverty line. Like, $75 a week is a stopgap so that, you know, people aren't starving to death in the meantime or at least have a slightly less chance to hold them over. But that's not the end point. The end point is something that is a decent subsistence payment because the bottom line is there aren't enough jobs. And the bottom line, and I think we've talked about this before, and I don't know, Ginger, if you've you've heard us ranting about this, but... um, it seems to me that Labor needs to be able to pitch this uh, and they need to do it preemptively before the conservative media do it. The conservative media will turn around and be like, they'll demonise people on Newstart, they will say that they're dull bludgers, they will re- try to remove any sympathy so that so that it becomes toxic for Labor to be championing any kind of rise at all and if there is a rise, it's, it's negligible. Yes. Like they, they will do that. Um, and they will do it not just because they want to pay less tax, but because of the fundamental thing which Labor should be pointing out, which is that Newstart being so low depresses wages it pulls wages down because you can't you've got to take what your employer will give you if the alternative is starving to death if you study subsistence and you can survive on it without you know having to completely collapse in the gutter then you might call your employer on it you might retrain you might get demand better conditions and so forth but keeping it at a level that is so far below means that people will take shittier conditions shittier jobs with shittier conditions shittier wages just to be able to survive at all it pulls the whole thing down it pulls those wages down and it goes all the way up the tree so bottom line what labor should be pointing out is new start being low isn't help it doesn't help you at the expense of the doll the doll bludgers or whatever you think they are it is a way that the that the employer class is keeping you down yeah it's it's the structure upon which all of our wages are built it, it underpins everything mm. Yep, absolutely. And there's been some uh, interesting statistics coming out recently about how one of the fastest growing groups on New Start is um, older women, because they're women who have spent their lives raising their kids uh, at home, relationships break down and split up, they spent their whole life doing the right thing, and suddenly they're not really employable, they're underemployable, they find themselves on New Start. And it's, uh, you know, they don't have enough super, they don't have any savings and because they've done the right thing quote unquote their whole lives and now our system punishes them it's even the opposite too like so you can be uh underqualified and late in life and and they won't nobody will invest in in upskilling you or offering you jobs but the opposite can also happen you can be overqualified and be going through a temporary downturn and you still can't find jobs and the the media like to portray the right-wing media like to call that like job snobs they won't take a job at mcdonald's when they've got a degree but no employers won't hire people they won't hire overqualified people because they know that they'll nick off as soon as they find something better. Like they're only a temporary um, worker anyway, so employees won't take them on. So, like you can't if you are temporarily out of work with qualifications, 
and also, sorry, it's not just that. So, A, employers don't take you. But also, if you take those jobs, you will never be able to get back into your industry. You will have a black spot on your resume that employers in your industry will look at and go, you're working at McDonald's, won't hire you. Yeah, there must be some reason why you were slumming it in McDonald's. Yeah, it's actually harmful. What they are trying to force people to do is harmful. But, I mean, it does does create a, a um, an oppressed labour pool that will take any shit that employers feel like giving them. Yep, which, work, which works for businesses. It works for the broader model of capitalism, which is keeping people tired and working hard and doing too many hours to support themselves and their families. And all of this is particularly galling given that people like Michael McCormack enjoy like $288 travel allowance that covers all the same things that Newstart does like meals and accommodation whenever they go to Canberra but that's a day versus a Newstart recipient getting that for a week and I'm guessing with some confidence that they don't have to ring up Centrelink to get that turned back on if they trip over and don't go to an appointment they didn't get told about or something like that Isn't that pretty much the basis of everything that we do to the poor? Um, We basically impose on poor people conditions that we would never accept ourselves. I'm not saying it's surprising that the level of things you can get when you're um, impoverished uh, are lower. I'm talking about the kind of restrictions, the yeah, cut you off and you have to go six to eight weeks. No, no person who is happy with that rule applying to unemployed people would accept it applying to themselves. If they were entitled to a government payment, if they were entitled to franking credits or something, yeah. and the government's like, well, I'm sorry, um, you can apply for it, and over the period of time while we think about it, we won't give it to you, they would not They would scream blue murder. And mm. it's the same with you know, one of my, my bugbears is the, the, the fact that um, the entire chunk of Australia stuck renting forever mm. has to endure landlords invading their homes every six months because they've got to protect their investment. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, would you accept it if uh, you... So assuming that person's probably got a mortgage because mm. they own a home with the bank. Okay, cool. Would you be happy with the bank having the power to impose an, an inspection on your house every six months? Because technically... They've invested a, in it. It's their security for the loan. They yeah. should be able to come through your house, walk through, check how you're keeping it. And if they don't like how you're keeping it, kick you out. <laughs> would they be happy, you'd be happy with the bank having that power? No, but you're happy with it being imposed on people who aren't you. You see something similar when you see the, it's always the Herald Sun or the Telegraph, their, their front page articles about, you know, people on Newstart with their flat screen TVs, or we saw someone on Newstart with an iPhone because you can't have anything nice if you're poor. Um, never well, mind. So, there aren't even alternatives to those things. Like what? They, yeah. we, they should be traveling back to 1980 and buying a CRT? What? Yeah. And yeah, you, like you don't get your phone through your monthly plan, but it's also the, the poor tax you get on things. Um, the fact that we have our car insurance coming up and it's going to cost us significantly less if we can get the money together to pay it all at once versus if we pay it monthly. It's a poor tax. You know, you pay it all, you pay it up all at once. That's great. It's, it's your energy bill, getting your energy bill and having that discount if you pay it before a date, which is really a late payment fee, you know? And yeah. so if you have the money, you can get these discounts, you get these advantages. If you don't have the money, you get punished. Right, and you saw it with the um, hex situation where they've just massively increased the um, effectively a tax on people who have hex debts, uh, and which shouldn't be a debt; it should be completely waived. The tertiary education should be something that we're all entitled to. Of course, um, but they've just increased that. But of course, if you've got the money to pay upfront, you get huge discounts on hex. Yep. Or like if yeah, if you if you pay at the time, if you pay in a lump sum, it is to your advantage. But there's no way anyone earning any like anyone bringing in any kind of government payment would be able to afford to even scratch that surface. It's just it's impossible on that kind of thing. You could you could afford more to get a coffee if you were lucky than you could to pay that down. 
that would be your treat for the week. But but they would critique that too. You know, if they saw oh. you out buying, you know, one coffee for four dollars, they'd be like, "My God, how dare you squander your money?" Because you aren't allowed to have joy. You should be the grateful poor, and you should sit there with your gruel bowl, and you should be <laughs> you should accept what we give you. Yeah, that's pretty much the thrust of it. And we will make you jump through hoops uh, to get even those mega gift, those mega mega leavings that we will allow you to have. Well, I think it's actually a fundamental almost a defining characteristic of the conservative mindset and you see it constantly with things like uh like robo debt um like uh the way that their vast amount of money that's squandered uh, tormenting refugees on offshore islands you you find conservative minded voters are happy to spend money lose money to make people they don't like suffer it's yep. not about paying less tax by having you know a smaller new start or have less tax by having fewer refugees sitting on new start because they spend much more and they are happy with that they're fine with that as long as the people who they think are undeserving have been taught to hate are suffering and that's why they can't stand the idea that somebody who is on new start has found a way to have some joy in their life they want them to be miserable yeah. they want them to be punished it's that and it, that makes no sense to me like why do you want other people to suffer if you're not for no reason? Like I can understand the mindset of um, the selfish mindset of well, if I have to lose something for that person to be happy, then I don't want to lose that thing, and that's just selfishness. Mm. But the malevolence of the conservative mindset that goes beyond selfishness to I'm happy to spend money to make that person suffer. Well, that's sort of the idea behind drug testing. You know, when you drug test people who are getting new start, it has no benefit. Well, I'm, what's the even thinking about that? If, are they are they saying? I mean, the whole idea that you can kick people off New Start is direct, it's monstrous and stupid. If you kick people off the only support that's helping them have housing, even at the moment when it's so far below um, the poverty line, mm. again, one hundred thirty five dollars a week less than the poverty line. All the people who are like, well, we should kick them off Centrelink. What do they think they're going to do? Do you think they're going to just sit down in the gutter and die? Some people will. I'm sure. And I'm sure that is on some level what is hoped for. That is that is the desirable outcome to some people is that these problems go away when we cut them off. Where do they think the people go? Like, um, they're the same people who be complaining about crime. But frankly, if I was starving to death and the, and the society was like, well, I'm sorry, you can't get settling because you've got a drug problem. Well, I'd be like... Fuck society, then I'll I'll be breaking into stuff and I'll be stealing stuff and I'll be committing crimes because society doesn't care about saving me alive. And frankly, at that point, does society have any right to be like, oh, gets um, we should we're outraged that people are resorting to to property offences when society's gone go and oh, starve quietly like, in the gutter? Like we're we're gonna like the woman who the person who stole the uh, the chicken from was it Coles or Woolworths oh, the cooked yeah. chicken and and. <laughs> Yeah, like, how dare they do this? You know, people are starving. People need to do these things. It's it's really sad, but this is this is what we're forcing people into. Yeah. And now you're like, oh, well, send them to jail. It's almost like this is the conditions that we have created as a society that is causing people to go out and steal chickens or steal, I was going to say VCRs. That speaks to how old I am and how, <laughs> and how recently like I can their, interact with the, the uh, underworld. To and play on fencing. their cathode ray tube televisions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was the only thing they could find with the RCA connections. <laughs> that's right. I, I would have stolen something more up to date, but I'm only allowed to have a CRT. So sorry, it's VCRs. That's right. I need a SCART connection. 
<laughs> but it's also the i the the idea between fines, you know, like these the obscene fines that people get levied against them, which they then get sent to jail for in order to uh, pay off the fines by spending. So we're gonna spend money keeping you in prison for five days to pay off the fine. fine. Yeah. That. But that's actually going to impoverish your family because you're the only caretaker for them. And oh, wait, it's, you know, Aboriginal people who are more highly targeted by these things. Mm. Like, like it's just it's this constant thing that we have set up this system that, yeah, you are right, that we are more willing to spend money to punish people, to hurt people, and to well, hurt the most disadvantaged people. And also, once you've done that to them, keep in mind that you set up a system whereby they then will have no chance of ever getting work because employers go, oh, criminal record, no employment. Like, you're turning around to people and making it impossible for them to work, impossible for them to live because you haven't... And then it's moronic. Like, if you have a safety net and you help people retrain and you have a safety net that is a level that people can... Like, I understand... Well, in fact, you know what? No, I said last week. Actually, people who are willing to survive on a subsistence payment and not compete for the way too few jobs for the number of people who are fighting for them, those people are, like... They're social heroes. Those are the people who are willing to use few resources just to survive and just survive, and um, and let people who do want to have uh, employment have employment. And and I certainly agree that that employment should pay better than than um, uh, uh, when you're not doing labour. Yeah. But that's the that's the upshot of having a decent social safety net that it does in fact push up wages and conditions when you do do labor rather than the reverse when you don't have a safety net and it drags them all down what i would like to see is i'd like to see the uh, account on the number of job ads in the windows in dubbo and other regional towns versus the number of employed people in the cities who are supposed to move because I, i'd like to see if these mesh up i'd like to see some journalists go to dubbo and um, have a look at the shop windows and look mm. into what those actual jobs actually were or in fact if we've got any listeners in dubbo which seems like a long shot although Actually, no. Potentially, I do know someone who just say, drove. I know someone who just moved. I think we, we all know someone who just moved there. So, Very so maybe, long drive. Maybe we can get some research done for us for the next episode. Maybe that person, that unnamed person who just drove from from the other side of the country to Dubbo, might might be able to look up, uh, looking see, just do a bit of an audit of the mm. shop windows in Dubbo. That would speak to more effort being put in than Michael McCormack certainly put in, <laughs> or, or the or the Australian Press Gallery, or any, anyone, any anything around there. The people who just took that statement as fact and ran with it. Well, okay, so we've got Michael McCormack's uh, deranged... I think we all agreed that Michael McCormack's prescription of let them just move to the country is indefensibly stupid. And and look, if there's anybody who disagrees with that contention, by all means, at well may we say on the Twitters, feel free to share with us how somebody living in Sydney uh, and need, uh, unable to find work uh, how how you propose that they move to Dubbo, and that's ignoring the fact. Like, did you McCormack even notice the whole the pl- where you've lived all, all your life sort of thing, and where you've got your supports? Yeah. So you know, it's, so you're you're not only finding money that you don't have, taking a punt on a job that may or may not exist, or if it does exist, may not be enough to live on. Yeah, but you're also a moving job, away a from job that has a great deal of freedom to underpay you, um, mm. that is supported by government legislation in other regards. They're, like, they're, they're trapping you in any number of ways. 
Uh, and then you're also going to a place where you don't know anyone or have any supports. So, you know, if, if, if it does go to hell. Yep. A place that might not have great public transport. Uh, so you might not be able to get around in the same way. Yep. You'd have the expense of a car or something like that if you have to get around. You have social isolation happening. So that can lead to depression, situational depression and things. I also think that it's interesting that a lot of these things seem to be predicated on the idea that you are a single person with no dependence. So what about you're a parent? What about you have a partner? What about all of these other things? Like... Well, they do, and they do throw parents onto Newstart too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. but that, that's what I mean. So, like, what uh, your kids at school? You're trying to find work. You can only work between certain hours because you can't afford the ludicrous after-school care uh, costs. Like, there's all sorts of things here where you and and you need time off during the holidays. So, how are you supposed to then uproot your child from the school they're at and then move them to the country to a place where they might like? There's all sorts of of interesting things. These are all predicated on that you are a single person who is able-bodied. Um, able to get yourself there like there's oh anyway there's a, there's a tremendous amount of presumption this is a, a quick and easy catchphrase solution that has no bearing on the reality of relocating even even down the road like i moved from one part of coburg to another part of coburg and it cost thousands of dollars in we moved around so many the corner other... in mitchum and it was similar yeah like there's <laughs> there's so many there's so much money that you have to pull to make that move happen even where you could throw a rock from one place to another like we probably could have done, it is a massively expensive process that someone who earns $275 a week could not manage. And that's before you talk about moving into a regional area. And ignoring the fact that if you move to an area which Centrelink thinks has fewer jobs, they will also cut you off for that too. Like you can't actually... Oh. You're not, if you're on Centrelink, you're not actually just free to move around either. No, I'm sure you're not. I, I, I'm lucky, lucky to have never had to contend with Centrelink beyond uh, some stuff in my early, uh, like late, ad late adolescence. But the number of hoops and double backs and tricks and traps and things like that to prevent you from getting a job, like it seems like Centrelink should be, and, and the various job search providers should should be uh, in a position to provide you help to get a job to support you in this act but instead it's a series of increasingly narrowing hoops that you have to jump through i have a good friend who is the uh, carer for her child needs to be available at certain hours and after school hours and things like that and the jobs they were sending her to were just completely inappropriate and this is up in newcastle like there were there were limitations there were hours she could work and they'd be like this is a full-time you know, 12 to 8 job at a call center. Never mind that, you know, her, her, that she needs to actually pick her child up, that she needs to do all of these other things, that there's doctor's appointments and, 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 and therapies that the child has to go to that she needs to facilitate. And they're just like, well, if you don't apply for this job, which is completely not in appropriate hours for a single mom with two kids, then, you know, you could lose your payment. Yep. All right, so there's some spectacular let them make cake. I don't give a shit about the poor. I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> they should just do something impractical stuff from Michael McCormack, which is what we kind of expect. The other to hell with the poor moment this week was, of course, from former Labor Defence Minister Joel Fitzgibbon's brother, Mark Fitzgibbon, who turns out to be the head of private health insurer NIB. Now, I assume you both saw this. He's proposing, in order to deal with the problem that private health insurance is having at the moment on the basis that it's a complete uh, parasitical waste of money and uh, doesn't achieve what it's supposed to do, which is reducing the burden on the public system. It just costs us extra money uh, in those contributions to the private health system where most members also just continue to use the public system because, of course, you do. And so his plan to find a role for the private sector going forward is this, quote, as you tell it, you wrote this in a, an op-ed uh, in the AFR, 
A sensible policy approach would be to make private health insurance compulsory for all Australians with taxation devoted to subsidising the premiums for those who would otherwise be left behind. That is, high income earners would at one end of the scale pay the entire premium, while at the other, those with low income would be fully subsidised. See, Jeremy, he's not actually, it's not a kick the poor thing, it's a help the poor thing. If we just scrap Medicare and have a system where the high income earners pay a tax that subsidise the free health care for low income, wait, isn't that Medicare? Well, no, because Medicare doesn't have a role for the private health insurance in the middle of it. Yeah, just it's, pri- it's Medicare but privatised. It's Medicare but they can scrape money off the top. And also underfund the version going to poorer people. Oh, of course. Yeah, and create situations where you don't necessarily get covered for this surgery or that surgery or... Or you know. have to call Samalink and be on hold for an hour to get any kind of... like To get an anaesthesia to turn up in surgery or something like that. <laughs> like the, 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 It would not come, as we've seen with Michael McCormack's comments, it would not come free and easy. There is no world in which a private health system would have free coverage for you know, the impoverished or people in need uh, that would not then impose ridiculous conditions on them to prevent them accessing that same service. It, it, I have friends in America who, because of the health fund that they belong to, um, they can only go to certain hospitals and yeah. be covered. And so they're completely covered, but... A child broke their arm and they had to drive an hour past the closest hospital to get to a place where they'd be covered. What? Like, how? Ah, how is that a good system? It doesn't make any sense because your consumption of health resources is not by choice. It's by need. And it doesn't... It's one of those things that that a private market makes no sense. It costs more and achieves less and it always will. And if he's saying... He must be proposing... Well, it's not not clear from what he wrote whether he's proposing that the coverage is different for different people. So if you're a rich person, you're paying the full premium, are you getting exactly the same outcome as a poor person whose whose premium is entirely subsidised by the taxpayer? I think that's what he was implying. Well, he's in that case, it might as well be run by the government. Like, what's the private insurer doing what What's, is their role in that They're, they have no role in this They're, they've got nothing to bring to this except that they want to earn money he wants money for himself and for his shareholders and the best way to do that is to funnel the entire operation of australia's health system through his network and those millennials are ruining private health care because <laughs> they aren't making enough money to afford it and they've realized it's a crock so they aren't signing up to it yeah because i could pay six hundred dollars a year in health insurance to spend $200 on a pair of glasses it would otherwise spend to cost me $400. That's that's the math of public health, of private healthcare. The point is spend a great deal of money to get very little back. Yes. And the, the premise of healthcare is that people pay it when they're young and then use it more when they're old. And the, the in order to stop people just joining the private health system when they get older, John Howard added in that ridiculous the, what they call the life lifetime health guarantee or something. That sounds like, familiar. It's it's so what that is, is it's a penalty if you hit 30. 30, yeah, from 30 you start accruing additional percentage on the cost. So you get a penalty after that when you join private health insurance. But if you're 30 and you can't afford rent, you're not still not going to do it whether or not they're going to punish you for the rest of your life or not. And so I suppose that also means that when you get to the point where uh, you're older and you would consider having private health insurance, now it's got this additional penalty. So people are going, oh, well, it's not worth it then. I'll just use my own... I'll just put it in a bucket and or I'll just hope that I don't get sick until it's too late. And I'm seeing more and more people I know who are ditching most of their private health insurance and just getting like a basic hospital plan so they you know they get the bare minimum that they require for that system mm-hmm. to not have to pay that extra levy for during the year because uh, there's also 
a levy you need to pay often for your taxes if you make over amount and they yeah, pay they like the it. yeah and they and they pay the um the ambulance fee so should there ever be an emergency uh you know you pay like a dollar a year in victoria mm. um for your ambulance levy um so that way it's covered for the system and you don't get you know a bill for like 800 dollars for an ambulance ride which again is obscene that that might apply to if you're poor and don't have coverage. Like why the idea that that going in an ambulance by which is by definition need you probably you're not even conscious for it. It's a decision that's made to keep you alive, and the idea that they can then penalise you with obscene fees and it's not covered by taxes. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. It's again reminding me of America where they say like if you see someone on the street and they've been had in a car accident or something or they've been uh, hit by someone, don't necessarily call an ambulance for them because they could end up with this massive debt they can't afford. So yeah. like don't call necessary paramedics for the person who is hit by a car because of the hundreds of thousands. Like are we really aiming for that system? Does that really seem like something that's desirable? Well, it is to Mark Fitzgibbon because he's at the top of it and he'll be fine. That, but, it seems like there's a lot of people in like in our government and in our private health insurance industry who do want that. That is, the American model is the ideal as far as they're concerned. It, it has no reference to the way that it treats the people who use the service. It's purely about the fact that all of those companies make a great deal of money. And let, let's be clear about this. The only way that private health, and it's the same with private education, the only way that those systems can operate and be profitable is if the public system is run down if the public system covers all that it needs to and what you need it to do is cover if you're sick they you will be you will receive treatment and you won't be bankrupted um what that's what you need that's you people need that that's what covering people's health involves if the public system does that why would anyone pay for private health insurance there is no reason to. So the very existence of a private system means that you've got a, a powerful lobby group who has massively in their own financial mm. interest, uh, it's it's massively in their interest to want to push the public system worse and worse. Uh, and also, second to that, you've also got more and more people who are presumably not using the public system, presumably they're more powerful and wealthy people. Yep. And so, again, you've got an incentive from them to underfund it. The people who are making the decisions, the people who've got the most influence, don't use the system. So why are they, they, they will resent money and resources going towards it. The only way you have a decent public health system that deals with everybody's needs is to get rid of a private health system. And likewise, education. Like if your education system, if the public education system is as is first rate and what it should be for every student, why would anybody send their kids to private schools? And you see this playing out in Victoria, where they've recently said that there's a funding crisis for public hospitals because, you know, doctors and nurses are working too much and so we need to pay them more and we need to ensure that. And the media is portraying it as like, damn, those doctors and nurses need, are, are demanding more money, so now patients could be cut and we could not be helping all the patients. It's like, that's not what they said. Um, and so there's a big push from our state government and then the other state, aligning with the other state governments to get more money from the federal government for healthcare, which they don't want to give because they want to push people to this private system. They like breaking it down. They like the fact that they've frozen these Medicare levies for years and years and years and that there's these bigger gap payments. Yeah, and they use the same the same smear tactics on teachers who are advocating for a pay rise because they're also brutally underpaid in the public system. Of course, uh, I'm talking about here nurses. Also, all sorts of staff in public systems are cripplingly underpaid, and whenever they advocate for themselves and the incredibly valuable work that they do for every person in the society, they're presented as greedy or clingy or demanding in ways that 
I don't remember anyone ever accusing a politician of being greedy. The, the exception, for some reason, is paramedics. And the exception, it's like the, how the exception is the CFA. Like, if the CFA wants money, it's okay. But if the Melbourne Fire Brigade wants money, it's not. You know, it's... But, but the CFA don't... The CFA have volunteers. They don't but, even no, get but some, no, some of the core... No, they're, they're a core paid staff. Well, anyway... The CFA the, is a whole, the a whole idea... bonkers thing of, like, why, why again, are they relying on... Why is it that once you hit in Melbourne, I think it's like... Um, Croydon or something like suburban Melbourne for some reason suddenly you don't have a metropolitan fire brigade you have to rely on volunteers yeah incredible um, and yeah so but it's the same idea like paramedics are okay they're allowed to, to want more because they're running ambulances and they're an emergency service but you know you get to the emergency room and you get to the nurses working there and the interns and the doctors who are there for you know 10-12 hours we went to the emergency room the other day and just for triage there was a line out the door never mind an absolutely packed waiting room yeah, sorry. It's like you couldn't even get triage. It's, yeah. Like, like, the, they kind of needed to have a triage for triage. Yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense. So yeah, fundamentally, the only way that those things get run properly is if the people who've got the money and the power have to use them. Yeah. So you, get rid of the, you need to get rid of private education, private health. Those things are ways that the public systems are underfunded and run poorly. Yeah. All, all politician salaries come through Centrelink. All politicians have to take public transport to get wherever they're going. All of these things are the only way to make these systems work well because the people who make the decisions have to appreciate how fucking awful it is to be on hold to Centrelink and hear that incredibly compressed bad guitar over and over and over again. That's oh, yeah. a form of torture that that's completely separate to all the other hoops you have to jump through. Uh, fundamentally, the parliamentary pensions should be run by Centrelink. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Most employers don't pay pensions in that idea anymore. If you, you know, work somewhere for 30 years and retire at uh, 60 or 60, you know, at 60, you're not going to get a payout for that from that company for, you know, X number of years. You will, your super will kick in when you hit the proper age for that super to kick in, not before. But, you know, if you're an MP and you were an MP between 30 and 45 and you stop at 45, you're going to start getting paid at 46 and you're going to get paid for the rest of your life. It's, I think that's obscene. I, uh, I, I can't do, I have no room to argue with that. That is a patently true statement. Also, um, if their, their uh, allowances weren't worth on for a day, the amount that they are on settling for a week. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is also obscene. Yeah, the, the, the number of ways in which politicians are paid and given allowances and given bonuses and things to, to smooth their existence, even a fragment of that would make the lives of tens of thousands of Australians dramatically better. Now, that said, I actually don't want a system where uh, parliamentary conditions are poor enough that basically the only people who run for parliament are the rich and powerful and people who are uh, sponsored by lobbyists and corporate Australia. And basically, you, you do want to have a system whereby parliamentarians are okay uh, and not desperate and hungry for whatever you know, influence they can sell. This is true. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not advocating for politicians living on $275 a week. That I don't want anyone to live on that. But I, I see no reason why the gap between poor and rich should be much much smaller and have our parliamentarians be well respected and well regarded in the same ways that teachers should be well paid and well regarded and stuff like that in ways that give a sort of a level playing field they should certainly at least have to deal with Centrelink if, if you pull the politicians had to deal with Centrelink uh to obtain their parliamentary so the, the the pension it's too late by that point they've left parliament but if they had to deal with Centrelink in order to get their allowances and so forth, if all of those, yeah. if every, that, that should be 
um, fundamentally part of it. Now, if you want to, if you want to buy, if you want to spend two point one billion dollars on a bunch of fucking submarines, you should have to go through a series <laughs> of menu options on the phone to Centrelink and listen to the bad classical music, and then talk to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, get bumped to another department, and back to that same department every time you want to do anything. And also make sure that when they when you ring them the first time and you get advice or you get told what they want, need you to do, when you ring back up, then, then what you need is for nothing to then happen and then you ring back two weeks later to say, well, hang on, what's happening with that? And you get completely contrary advice from them. Yeah, person. and there's no record of you ever having called again and your <laughs> exactly. submarine order is delayed. But we don't get submarine orders delayed. That would be ridiculous. Anyway, I, I feel like Mark Fitzgibbon has indeed uh, done done, a f- done fine work for his shareholders this week by prompting an exodus from NIB from anybody who's, you know, a bit horrified by paying money to a company that is literally campaigning to scrap Medicare. I like to think that that came back to bite them and that the shareholders of NIB will now be angry, but they will only be angry if everybody who's listening to this who has NIB and anybody who you know knows other people who've got NIB, if those people then switch out of NIB and cite that as the reason. Yeah, it would have to be a, a noticeable drop-off and it would have to be something that holds. Like they, We can't have a drop-off and then pick back up. It needs to be a drop that is sufficient in scale that shareholders are scared because that's the only thing they listen to is a drop in numbers. And it is terrifying because it's the whole Overton window thing. And now that they've now that they've said this, it's sort of made like the first time you say let's scrap Medicare, it's going to be unthinkable and promote backlash. <laughs> but it's now been said, so the, the idea next is person out who there. starts talking about it. Yeah, yep. it's a less radical idea. It's less. It sounds less absurd because there is an established conversation around it. Yeah, it's terrifying. Which, which, if if we're cynical, and I think we can safely assume that we are, there might (laughs) (laughs) great laugh. Uh, There, there is the strong possibility that Fitzgibbon has made these comments to broach this conversation, and is maybe a sacrificial lamb to start this conversation happening more broadly. And I'm sure that there are serious conversations happening that would fit this model that he's advocated for uh, amongst people who can make those changes, and that's what scares me. I feel like there's kind of this weird. You know, you know how that the people, the, the corporate world is constantly the the free market thing. We need we need free markets and uh, gov- the small small government that you can drown in a bathtub and uh, leave it up to the invisible hand. But that's never actually what they want in reality. What they actually want is a bunch of government help forcing people to use their crappy services, like this thing, which isn't even a look. Let's just leave healthcare up to the up to the wild, and uh, you know. The, the rich can have it and the poor can uh, can go without or something like this. This version is the, it is effectively the same as having government providing it through ta- through taxation. It's just with these parasites in the middle yeah. and who have no record of looking after the people who are not profitable for them. Like it's not like the private health insurance industry is one that you go to and go, well, look, bottom line is they at least know to look after the, the least profitable people within their well, company. Yeah, it might yeah, cost it, a lot of money, but they provide a better service. And that's not the argument that Fitzgibbon made. It's not that we'll do it better. It's just it would make sense for us to handle it. And it's not like there's been this massive inquiry where all of these people have been shown to have uh, not had the medical staff review the records of people with pre-existing conditions who've had treatments denied. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we didn't actually have the doctor review these things, you know, that they that we are supposed to and required to by law. We just said no to them. Yeah. Well, like, so it's well, not like there's this recent record <laughs> that they fuck it up. Or right. a broader historical tendency for privatized industries to cut corners and ex- exclude people who need these services. And again, the bottom line is 
they can't do the job, which is why like they constantly need the government to... F- they, they can't sell service that people want, so we've got this, this government penalty that's imposed on us yep. if, we don't, if we don't buy this private service. And he's going the next step of the gov- government should force us all to pay money to a private company. Yep. Like, what? You, you can't... It's like they're not even trying to compete at this point. They're just like, we want money and nobody wants to give it to us, so the government should force people to give it to us. Yeah. The, 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 the government can force people to do this, but it's not okay for the government to force literally anything else. That's fine. This is totally cool. We They can force... The government can and should force supply where there is no demand uh, into our company uh, so that we our company continue to be afloat and our, our industry, our, our private healthcare industry private healthcare industry can continue to bumble on its merry way and line our pockets. And to be fair to, to, be fair to Mark, his job as a, 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 a on the board of, of a private company, his job is to promote the interests of that company. It is not to promote the interests of ordinary people to have access to healthcare. Sure. It is to promote the no, financial no interests interest of that company. Of course. And to be fair to Mark, that is what he's doing. He's doing, the rest of us should doing that very well. And what I find interesting is the government that we currently have will sit there and talk about like corporate welfare and how they're not there to give, you know, corporate welfare and to give handouts and things like that. But, you know, we have these things like these Medicare systems and we have all of these these systems like all the the, drought, the various drought relief systems going to, you know, private corporations. We have a whole bunch of like private farming corporations. We have all of these sorts of things where we are here to give corporate welfare, as they call it. We are just here to do it to the people we like. Yeah. To, to do it to our, our nepotistic relationships and all, all of the other ones who give us the, the big bonuses and the luxury tours and fly us nice places and treat us to special dinners. Oh, we'll see the, everything about... Uh... <coughs> Money. <laughs> well, that's right. They're, they're entire, it's like the Certainly. Liberal Party. Well, because so much of the Liberal Party policy about coal and, and the non, you know, basically non-renewable energy, coal and mining... Um, is actually at the expense of a lot of corporate Australia. Like it's it, not just that it's pushed up energy prices, but also um, the way they prioritise the things harms other businesses. Yeah, it's just that they happen to have a set that are their friends, and the other yeah. ones are okay to be on board, even though they're being screwed by that particular focus. They're happy to be on board as long as you know they, they'll get tax cuts, and that's all they care about. In fact, there's a remarkable. It just strikes me that there is so much of the political support for conservatives boils down to nothing more than people who hate paying tax and don't want to give something to other people and they will vote for the conservatives no matter what horrible shit they do even if they disagree with a lot of the horrible shit as long as they get tax cuts yeah that's that is the boil down essence of it weirdly enough though the same conservatives who want the government to be small enough to be drowned in a bathtub are also the ones who are really keen to give it terrifying authoritarian powers uh as we like it's the fundamental Thing and I've got up going off on a tangent even before I introduce the next thing. It's, like, it's, it's the thing between government as servant and government as master. Like lefties, we look at government as a something that, that should be our servant, that should be providing services to yeah. us. Uh, we pay taxes, and then they are the government's job is to keep the country running properly and provide yeah, services. Yeah, they act as the agent to distribute that money, that tax money in services that help us function as a society. That is, a, I think, a fairly reasonable model. Yeah. So not so the government may be large to provide those services, but it's not terrifying and oppressive. Whereas conservatives are like, no, I mean, nothing's more terrifying than paying, paying taxes. However, we would like government to have giant authoritarian powers over every single one of us. Yeah. They think that there is no cognitive dissonance there, as far as they're concerned. It's like the the very the most terrifying parts of of government that they portray as this menace. They're the things that they like, and here we saw it this week. Where uh, let, let me read you the I love the Australians headline for this on Thursday. 
Labour falls into line as Foreign Fighters Bill passes. So just confirming what this is. Uh, weirdly, they called it the Foreign Fighters Bill and not the uh, giving Peter Dutton the power to exclude you from the country with no fair process and no right of appeal Bill 2019. Weirdly, they didn't give it that name. I don't know why. It's, it's long and it's a bit unwieldy. This is much savvier and snappier for the headlines. Oh, also much more misleading and much more saleable. For sure. So the Australian summary of it is that it, it will prevent Australian jihadis from re-entering Australia for up to two years. But of course, the determination of who is a jihadi and who is... Uh, not a jihadi, is uh, the point that he's completely lit up to Peter Dutton and I'm sure that he wouldn't in any way use uh, his power to exclude people from the country against, I don't know, whistleblowers, uh, political... Like, there's no there's no scope for that creeping beyond people who... Okay, who even are jihadis or even connected with being jihadis or even being, like, they're even being some way of accusing them of being jihadis. So beyond that, there's... there's once he can do that, he'll be like... Um, People who uh, you, you, Julian Assange's, your um, whistleblower, your um, Bernard Collery, your, your, your whistleblowers that the, the, the department doesn't like. Just unsavory types. Your senators who go to Nauru, who yeah. menace and. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nick yep. McKim's visa suddenly disappears. Um, so, yeah, so basically uh, the parliament has now given Peter Dutton the power to exclude any one of us, Australian citizens who are entitled to be in Australia. Uh, I mean, obviously, refugees are also entitled to come to Australia and seek asylum, and they don't respect those rights either. But this is so, true. Um, but for the Australian citizens who vote for the government, who are just assuming that this extraordinary power to keep Australian citizens from entering the country will only be exercised by this politician and future politicians who hold that office, it will only be exercised fairly inappropriately, even though there's no process, there's no appeal rights. I can't, I can't imagine there's much in the way of oversight or like reporting to be done on this execution of this power either. I don't think I can't imagine that Peter Dutton's going to put out a weekly newsletter telling us who he's excluded from the country. No, and who watches the watches? He has the entire. He has the police force. He has border security. He has like all of. He has the AFP. He yeah, has, everything goes through him. You want to Who's talk about to- scope creep? Jesus Christ! This man. This man has continued to amass some of the most significant powers in the Australian federal parliament. Say Peter Dutton went mad and was evil. More mad. (laughs) Say Peter Dutton was evil. Let's start from the assumption that Peter Dutton was a human and then went worse. Okay, to to somebody who likes the idea of what Peter Dutton's here, say the next Labour government, the next oppressive, tyrannical (laughs) Labour government, puts someone into Peter Dutton's office, which obviously should only ever be Peter Dutton's for all time, but uh, the Labour Party won an election, they put somebody in that office, and they have the power to exclude you... A, a, a you know conservative patriot from the country. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable Sorry. with the people you don't like having that power over you? This, I don't think there's any conservatives in the room to answer for themselves. But <laughs> <laughs> rhetorically, we speaking. don't know. He's on, he's only like six months old. <laughs> yeah, this little one might rebel. Oh, look, he, look, he's well, going. We, to, did, he, we did name him Alex Peaky. I was just about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but it is it is true. Like, that, the pitch for Family Ties was, you know, the, the parents are cool and, and the kids are square. Um, I mean, that would that would fit because we are pretty cool parents. So we are at risk. <laughs> anyway, the only way that... Can they pe- hear the sound of all the board games around? <laughs> no, the board games are silent and yeah. board games are cool. So shush. So, okay. So conservatives haven't considered, like, when the other side has the power. But the... I mean, also, just fundamentally, they must just think... It's like this invisible, unconscious white privilege thing. It's a thing where you assume that it'll never happen to you. And the reason you assume that is because 
you are privileged and this sort of shit hasn't happened to you. The only things that have happened in your life where you've had problems with authority, you've been able to deal with because they've treated you with respect and courtesy because of who you who you are, or at least comparatively. And so you're not afraid of them overstepping their bounds because in your experience, they've never done that to you. Yeah. And, Especially and, if you've never been on Centrelink and tried to get your payment restarted. Like, what? if you haven't had to fight that kind of system that doesn't want to help you, uh, then it seems reasonable that Peter Dutton has this power. Because he wouldn't abuse it. People he, in authority he, don't abuse their power. Yeah, Peter, Peter Dutton would only use it for the most upright. And, like, I, I don't want to rush to a slippery slope argument, but this is a massive unchecked power that has the scope to do this. He has the scope to apply this to anyone without explanation or justice, like needing to justify it to anyone. Well, it, yeah. it is. It isn't just a slippery. So, slippery slope is a fallacy because it assumes that. Well, that's why I don't want to get to it. Well, but <laughs> I don't I'm like t- slippery slope arguments. But this is a scope creep argument. Well, because I don't think, and I don't think it is. Because slippery slope is if A happens, then then B must B, happen because B, it's the B same. And C logically, because it's, because it's the same. Because there's no barrier between them. Yeah. It doesn't apply in this case because the barrier is that Australian citizens are entitled to be in Australia, and. Nobody should have the power to exclude them from it. And they've just jumped right over that. Yeah. And then the second thing is you should never have your basic rights taken from you without at least a, a an actual independent process, not by a politician, but an independent process through courts. So that's what the whole idea of the rule of law is, that the people in power don't just have the power to arbitrarily take away your liberty and so forth. That's like a fundamental principle of the rule of law. To make you stateless, essentially, for two years. Yeah. Mm. So the reason... What are the implications of that? Well, terrifying. So this isn't just a slippery slope of... Like, this is crossing a giant border. This This is taking away some very fundamental protections and those protections are what our liberties bloody rely on like the idea that the government can't just do that to you is the only reason why we're different from the states where the government does do that to you and now we're not and the labor party's just voted this through they've done what the what's the guardian calling it bitch and fold where they whinge about it briefly and then fold It seems like this whole reasoning of labour on national security, on refugees and so forth, is simply that we can't ever stand up against whatever excesses the the Conservatives push. We can't win this argument, so we just have to keep giving them what they want. Because we'll get dragged through the mud in the Murdoch press. So where is the line? Where is the line where Labour goes, no more, no further? Because the Conservatives can just keep doing this. And this won't be... Again, this isn't a slippery slope. This is looking at past behaviour as a predictor of future behaviour, yes. why do we not think the Conservatives will just take the next step? Now, it can be more, not just jihadis, but people who have uh, embarrassed the country, people who uh, we think are of poor character, who, somebody who Peter Dutton thinks of poor character. Keep in mind, Peter Dutton thinks that, you know, animal welfare activists are scum of the earth. So are they going to be prevented from entering the country, coming back? Like, how far does it go? And at what point can we be confident that the Labour Party would turn around and go... No. And not just no, we'll vote against it, but no, we'll fight against it. Because, that, I mean, like, this whole thing from Labor's been, well, we can't do anything because we don't have a majority of votes in the House of Representatives. Yes, you can. You can fight it. Yeah. That's what yeah. politicians are, That's why you've got those seats. If you're not going to fight it, what's the bloody point of even showing up to work? What, yeah, it's the word opposition. I was going to say, the the, it's is, in the title. <laughs> the idea is that you oppose. Like, you were still... Uh, they, he's making... Albo's making a big deal about having lost these seats and having, like, the lowest vote in 100 years. But the people who voted for you and the people who did elect the number of you who are in seats still elected you because of what you were standing on. And you need to represent those people. That's right. Fundamentally, the people who didn't vote for you 
aren't the reason why you've got those seats. You've got those seats because, because you, prom- you promised to do things for those people yeah. and you're just throwing it away. You didn't go to the election saying you would vote for the stage three tax cuts. Yeah. None of your voters gave you that seat on the basis that you were going to vote for that $95 billion going to very rich Australians. And yet you did it anyway. Yep. So why, if you're saying, oh, we need to come back, this is, we've got to win our voters back, they know now that if they vote for you, you're going to flop all over the place after the election. Why would they vote for you again? At least if they vote for the Greens, they know the Greens will actually fight for that stuff. Not just vote against the bad stuff from the from the LNP, but also fight it. They will campaign against it. They yeah. will make arguments in the press about Vocally it. Vocally and publicly resist that. They won't accept it when they just lose the Conservatives. It's not like when um, Labor won a vote in Parliament when they were in government, Tony Abbott went, oh, well, I, I suppose a carbon tax is fine now. Yeah. No, he fought it. They keep fighting. You can fight stuff. You lose, you lose a battle. Doesn't mean you've lost the war. You yeah. keep fighting it. That's how you also you fight and you fight and you fight and then you win. Well, and I find it interesting that you know Albanese's come out and said that he's going to. They're going to decide whether they're going to support or oppose the government measures based on policy integrity rather than opposition for opposition's sake. And it's like. Well, you say policy integrity, but you voted for, you know, this big tax repeal, which you then have been cutting down and been saying since then, like, it's not fundable. It's not all these things. It doesn't seem like there's policy integrity there. Look, I, I, I don't want the Labour Party or Albanese as a leader to be oppositional for the sake of being oppositional. Yeah. I, I, I don't need, like, I've got a three-year-old. I don't know what it's like to deal with someone who's being oppositional. It's not helpful or productive no, sometimes. No, you don't. No, you don't. I, I want someone who no, you like, don't. <laughs> assesses things on no, the nonsense. Merit. I don't want anything. Uh, I, I, I want yes, something. <laughs> he also has a three-year-old. He can get away with it. I'm, I'm practicing to be one. Sorry, I'll shut up. No, but like it is, it is your job not to. Like I don't like a lot of things that Tony Abbott did, but you could very readily see that he presented a strong and clear argument. Not necessarily a good argument or a rational argument, but he had a clear stance on just about everything. And that stance was almost always pretty much what you just did to me, which is no, you're wrong. No, stop. But. He actually stood up and he continued to make arguments and he went on radio and talked about why he thought this thing was bad. And I don't agree with him and I've never agreed with him politically, but at least he opposed, he resisted, he presented an alternative rather than being a slightly like more beige version of the Liberal Party or the, the Labour Party in his case. So Albanese was on the uh, Guardian Australia podcast this week and he was saying to, I think it was Catherine Murphy, saying, I understand the disappointment that is out there, and I understand that people are looking for easy answers, but if we simply said we will do exactly the same thing with exactly the same policies in exactly the same way, then you should expect exactly the same outcome. We've seen the movie, and it just played out. Okay, Albo, if you are listening to what progressive people are saying to you and your conclusion is that they want you to do the same thing you did before the election, you're not listening. We're not asking for easy answers. We're asking for you to be an actual opposition and fight for progressive policy. We're asking you to not wait till two months after the election to go, oh yeah, we should increase New Start. We're asking you to make it clear that there's a problem with New Start. Explain to people there's a problem with New Start. Explain to people that it's in their interests, both people on New Start and people who are um, wage, well, or... wage earners, who are your base, who you're worried about the government being able to come out and um, demonise and employ people so that your your working class base resents you giving them money. You need to be out there arguing it. You're not going to win this point and you're not going to win government again if you are incapable of arguing basic things like 
Um, workers, you are better off if New Start is at a level where employers actually have to compete with it. Like Labor, Albert, we expect you to be out there fighting it, and but you don't have to. We expect that when the Conservatives turn around and say, "No, they're all doll bludgers," that you won't go, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Now I'm scared. Don't 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 say me. Don't argue with Oh God, we fold. Bitch and fold is is not going to get you anywhere. We expect you to turn around to the conservative and say, "No, they're not fighting for it because they care about you, wage earners, you workers, working class people. They're fighting it because they want you hungry and starving and knowing that you don't have an alternative. The only way that you get your conditions back is for New Start and for there to be actual safety net again, which they've destroyed. You need to argue it all the time, over and over, wherever you are." And, and that's the only way you win an argument. You're not going to win it by waiting for you know, the Conservatives to fall over or give up. They're never going to give up. They won't give up until we're the bloody, you know, an oppressive far-right capitalist state. Well, my favourite thing is that he's still saying that he's progressive and the Labour is progressive. They're not going to offer voters wishy-washy centrism, which is what they've been offering for the past couple of months since they came back. I would love them not to offer wishy-washy centrism. I, yeah. I, I, I welcome Albo demonstrating a lack of wishy-washy centrism. I, Please I'm, do. I'm glad to hear him acknowledging that that is a risk because that's absolutely the trap that they've fallen into. And I can understand on some level. It is what they're doing. And I can understand hang on, on hang some on. level. At what point is voting consistently for the, the LNP's horrible right-wing legislation? In what way is that wishy-washy centrism? Well, I, I guess to be fair, it's wishy-washy, like uh, under the cover of darkness, right-wingedness. It's not really centrism anymore. Yeah, really. Well, if, if, we, if we're being honest with ourselves, but I, I understand if you've had a massive defeat like that, you might take a moment to step back, like a retreat, to reflect, to rebuild, and like reconfigure yourselves and, and think about your messaging and and you know maybe drill down on particular things and and identify your priorities and work on those and work in those areas but he just continues to let the LNP set the agenda and he follows that agenda and like the Guardian says he puts up a minor resistance and then just goes with it anyway I also resent the idea that the ALP feels that if they've failed to win an argument then they just need to abandon it so the franking credits that is a an abs- the, the cash payout of what six billion dollars and growing every year to mm. people who are rich and own shares in fact there'll be more of them now because the people who can do their rules now are more aware of it yeah it's been well publicized now the idea that labor didn't win the election and therefore and and the conservatives ran a scare campaign and therefore labor should just give up on it like you just didn't do a good job of arguing it there's a difference between a policy being bad and you just having failed to sell it yeah, if, that was a complicated policy. And I think practically on the face of it, it's a good policy, but it's a really difficult one to communicate. And they were beaten by the LNP's very much more simple, uh, efficient, if inaccurate, scare campaign about you're hurting retirees. And the, But that doesn't mean that it's not possible to win that argument. No, it, just no, means it doesn't. Labor you, tried something, did it badly, and lost. You need so, to reconfigure that argument and come at it again. Yeah. You find a different way to communicate. No, this is not about hurting retirees. This is about hurt. Like, this is about. I was going to say about hurting someone else, but this is about figuring out an appropriate way to distribute the limited money that we have in our budget and giving it to people who don't need more money is a good place to save. Fundamentally, I reckon you can win the franking credit argument with. Uh, and, and okay, so they've, they've wasted the chance to be able to turn around to people, which they should have done this election, and say. Do you understand franking credits? Do you know what they are? Have you heard of them before now? Then you're not the one who's getting the $6 billion a year. Yeah. You're, if you've never heard of them before now, like this should have been a really easy thing to sell. Like If you're just hearing about them now, you're paying it to them. It's not money that we're taking yeah, from you. Frame it in that it's way. money that they're taking from you and giving to people who aren't you. Yeah, you, the taxpayer, are giving 
Doris and Duncan, who've got the $1.5 million yacht, another $250,000 a year that they didn't earn and don't need. Yeah, you don't, don't let the um, Liberals turn around and make it sound like that money is coming from your pocket, which they did. They managed to make it sound like Labor's coming to get stuff out of your pocket. Preempt that. Like, they should have known that they were going to do that. And they pre- you should preempt it and say, the Libs are coming for your pocket. Yeah. You're being, they're coming from you and taking it and giving it to rich people. Yeah. Build that resentment. I mean, there should be resentment there. Build that resentment up. There should be. Make oh. it impossible for them to flip it. But even now, you can still argue it by simply saying, by simply running that argument. Like, you just need to make, and they need to do the same thing about cost of living. And I accept that right now, Labor probably should wait about six months after the, the brief sugar hit of, of the tax cut money going to rich people. Yep. Um, but after that, from you know, by the end of the year, Labor should start running with, and they should run hard on this for the next two and a half years until the next election. Yep. They should be running with, um, you need to be afraid, of, you're struggling, aren't you? Your rents are going up, cost of living is going up. Yeah. Um, every time, anything, they, their relentless pitch should be, you should be afraid of the Libs getting another three years to do this. Oh, my God. How much are you being harmed by the Libs getting this three years? So even preempt- get more positive and go something like like the same thing, like identify a very real problem that like a lot of people in my circles are feeling. is like the cost of living is really high. You'll never be able to buy a house. Mm. All, all of these things are to do with specific policies that the LNP have put in place. And they will continue this agenda of increasing the wealth and the aggregate income of rich people at your expense uh, and here is what we will do to make your life better okay but except i think that they need to learn that the one thing they should learn from the libs is that fear works and that the, yeah. and if you if you argue it as a fear campaign in the same way as the libs did it and if you do it first it stops them turning around because the libs whole thing is you're you're barely making it through at the moment you're barely surviving you can't risk a change you can't risk a change yes. It's too scary. The idea that you know they might change things and make it even worse. So if they keep you, they keep you close to the line, and then they threaten that it could get worse. Labor needs to be starting before then with you're already close to the line. They're in power. They've pushed you to the line. They're in power. They've pushed you to the line. Yeah, the you can't deal with this. any more of this. Too much of this. It's hurting, and they need to hammer that relentlessly so that it's too hard for the libs to then flip it and go, "Well, you can't risk Labor because the message they're really hearing is, "No, no, I can't." If you want people's instinctive response to that to be, "I can't afford you," yeah. Yeah, we, we can't afford incumbency. Yeah. Anyway, on the subject of Labor failing to run an argument and thereby giving the Conservatives cover forever and ruining lives, Australia versus humanity. I feel like Vin is making it appropriate. Yeah. Look, I mean, that's how we feel about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think I've summarised. I've got nothing more to add. Nicely covered, Trent. Yeah. Okay. No, no. I, I, think, I think that in this, this week we actually do have to cover something specifically um, because the idea that this is ongoing... Is and the whole point of the Australia versus Humanity segment, and the reason why we have it, is because we should never let this just become the way things are and we accept it. Like, we, we should be... If the Save Albert Park protesters are still going 20 years or 30 <laughs> years after Jeff Kennett put the bloody Grand Prix in their park, and I don't think they still are, are they? They've given up by now. I would assume so. I haven't seen anything. But they kept going for a very long time. I This one, Australia versus Humanity, we need to keep doing this until this monstrous mistreatment of refugees. Yeah, having a slightly yes. different scale than Albert Park, we can we can keep kicking this can for a while. Yeah, I mean, they were lovely trees, but they weren't human beings. Yeah. And, you know, we can be... Anyway, so, um, this story this week, and I think that we're all in a position where we feel like there's an extra level of commenting, um, and, and perhaps perhaps we can all we can all say this, um, but as, as a, parent, a parent, we were horrified to learn... Oh, God. 
Of, uh, so you, you saw what happened with the family that was taken from Bilola in the middle of the night and uh, shoved in. So up in Queensland, and they just shoved in immigration detention in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, not allowed to go to parks, not allowed to basically leave their building. Yeah, not allowed to see the sun. So Tharanika, who was uh, a, pretty much a newborn when they pinched her uh, last in March last year, well, she was, she was an infant, she's now about two. And apart from all of the horrifying things that happen when you put a child... I mean... We have little children. Can you imagine what's happening to them being that, that poor, those poor children being stuck in immigration detention where they're not allowed outside? They were, what was the thing recently? They were, was it them who weren't allowed to have a even, birthday party? A birthday a party? Yeah, 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 I couldn't have a cake. Was yeah. it, was it the, that same, those same yeah. kids? Same yes, kids. it was. All right, well, um, I Tharanika. believe it was, in fact, that two year old's birthday party. So, Tharanika, who is a, uh, a, a child who has lived in Australia her whole life, yep. born um, in Australia. Was born in Australia, yeah. Born uh, in Queensland. She, they've now um, given her, they've now resulted in the, the treatment that they have, uh, such severe vitamin deficiencies uh, and uh, other, well, they've, they've got other medical and behavioural problems, but the upshot is that this week uh, they removed her teeth uh, that have now rotted in immigration detention. So there's a horrifying photograph of this small child uh, with her teeth that are rotted and, and they've just pulled them out. Yeah, can't look. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. What the hell are we doing to people? What are we feeding them, first of all? But, like, that we are keeping people in cages like this. And, you know, it was, okay, we've gotten the children out of detention um, on these horrible hellhole islands. And that's awesome because they're still in detention now in Australia. Great. Yeah, they're not. It's not like we've released, uh, freed people to actually have normal lives. Like, I, I can't. How could you do this to a... And the reason the reason why they think that their teeth are rotted is because the girls were only allowed outside for half an hour a day, depriving them of vitamin, vitamin D. Vitamin D, yeah, it's a for teeth and massive health. vitamin D deficiency. This is this is a great a massive symptom of that broader treatment. Mm. And this is this is not an isolated incident. This is not the only thing that's going to be completely ruined by the way that these children have been treated. Both these children, not just the younger one, both these children and their parents have been treated in such a way that will continue to have long-lasting physical, psychological and emotional effects on all of these children in a yeah. way that this the like this picture of the teeth is absolutely horrifying and it makes me physically ill to look at and it scares, it scares the hell out of me because I imagine what it would be like if my child was in a situation like that. And like, and, which, like, to be fair, you don't need to be a accident. parent to appreciate why that's horrifying. Oh, God, no. But. And there but for an accident of birth. Like, you know, I have immigrated to a country and was able to do so fairly easily by an accident of birth, by the fact I was born in Canada, by the fact I was born white, by the fact that I had all of these privileges. Yeah. It's completely accidental. It was a genetic lottery that, that got me there. I'm sure there are children who are born in Queensland within hours uh, who are not locked up in Melbourne. Uh, and ref- like restrained from seeing sunlight or enjoying mm. the outside air. Like, I can't begin to imagine what this is doing to these children. And I don't think there is any way that they will ever recover from this treatment. And to be honest, I don't know what this serves. I don't know what keeping this family locked up hang on, benefits hang on. anyone. This was a family who was who was very beloved in their local community, uh, were, were contributing. Uh, not that should be a, a, a criterion on which you yeah. determine whether to protect somebody or not. But look, they were human beings. Uh, who were raising children, uh, beloved in the community, and obviously that needed to be stopped uh, because of, you know... Uh, because they're brown, I think is the, the really the subtext of all of this. Yes. <laughs> because they had the audacity to seek refuge. Yeah. I, I do I do like that after all the evidence of the harm that, that um, the government's done to these poor children, their, their spokesman says, 
Um, it's just <laughs> they just lie. Um, healthcare services for detainees and accompanying family are comparable to those available to the Australian community under the Australian public health system, inclusive of mental health and dental care. The department, well, except they don't like. I'm fairly sure the government doesn't stop children going outside. No. Um, no. The department upholds. Even if you're on New Start. <laughs> okay. This bit, um, I don't have any audio of this, but I assume that they were giggling uh, while they said this. Um, the department upholds Australia's international rights obligations. <laughs> oh, it's like that scene that, that, that you know it's terrible Austin Powers movies where they just sort of yes. I assume they all stood around and were just like <laughs> sorry by embedding the consideration of the best interests of children into internal procedures and policies oh they if only there was somebody who was interviewing that person who was able to say in what way did you embed the consideration of the best interests of the children in this case how do you even put those words after each other in that context like how what what kind of distance like emotional barriers must you have to put up to be able to put those words into that order and say them out loud like do you just have to learn it phonetically and not think about the meaning of what you're saying because there is no way there's no human way that you could say that and mean that and believe that and granted that's part of being a political spokesperson but mm. it's, Did I, that person I, I after it. saying that and they they just couldn't live with themselves doing that job anymore and like i, I actually hope they have an employee assistance program because the person probably needs to call it yeah and like, yeah like but like how do you oh like i understand needing a job i understand needing to work but it's just so no, you, you don't work for border fast and you don't work for news corp like, sorry, there's, there's... But then, like, I know someone who's, you know, parent worked at, um, not immigration, like, uh, customs check at the Sydney airport and has, like, their whole life and they became part of Border Force, you know, like, got, they're amalgamated into that now, you know, the people who work down, you know, and it, it, you now then are a part of that agency and what you're doing is checking to make sure people aren't bringing flora and fauna in through their suitcases it, to, you know, to protect biosecurity in Australia. Oh. Yeah, the parts of border force, the, the you know, immigration, uh, not immigration, but the parts of the, the border system that actually have an, a, a humane, relevant, like they're to a do specific with, value. Yeah, yeah value, rather than the ones that are just about punishing people who. Yeah. who and the guy checking campaign, yeah. your passport at the airport is not a horrible, horrible person. They're an administrator, basically. Oh, they're a thing. So, like, border. Bo- and what um, the stupid Albanese quote this week was something like, you know, you can, because they're fighting against the Medibank. So obviously the government's just oh, yes. voted, voted to try and get rid of Medibank. Yep. Um, we don't know quite what the Senate's going to do with it yet. Like the, the minor difference between the ALP and the Libs on offshore detention. But Albo's like, his speech was that you can you can have you know strong borders and still be humane. Well, not, obviously not because you vote for this monstrous cruelty uh, yeah. uh, in, in defense of this amorphous conf- concept of borders. Like, because, of course, the people who are in favour of stricter border controls are perfectly happy with money floating around the world. Like, they want money to be stateless and money to be able to be go, you're knocked off to Cayman Islands and all the rest of it. And, of course, they, wa- they want to be out. Well, no, they want to be able to go on holiday to wherever they want in the world. Yeah. They want to be able to go wherever they want. They just don't want other people to come here. That's not There's, there's no reciprocality to that. Oh, they, they don't want <coughs> a bit of reciprocality with other white people. So, like, oh, yeah, sorry, that was, Canada. That was the just... asterisk after people. Was like... And if you and people are like, our, bo- our immigration policy is not racist. You could apply for a visa. No, because they're totally different systems. If you, if you live in Canada and you want to come to Australia on a holiday, you can get a visa really easily and hop on a plane. If you want to come here from Afghanistan, 
Uh, no, you can't just get on a plane and have a holiday visa to come to Australia. Uh, and if, of course, if you could, then nobody would be getting on boats. They'd fly here safely and apply for asylum. Yeah. Got it. And there's probably not also not like a readily available consulate in, in the far mountains of of Afghanistan. It's not and easy to go if, through and that process. There's a lot of countries no, where... No, there's, there's a different visa system. Like we have oh, no, I'm aware visas. there's, there's but, all of those like processes as well, but even just the but, ability to speak to someone to start that process. Or the ability to, in a lot of totalitarian countries, even get a passport. Yes. Like the ability to even get travel documents so you could even start the process of getting on a plane, of getting a visa, of getting here is so hard and such a high bar for people. That... And that's a counter to my argument that we could just give them visas, actually. That's, that's an argument of there are things that Australia doesn't control. And that's true. And so, you're right. Some people would still, therefore, do need our assistance to even get on the plane in the first place. But the first thing we could do to not have a racist immigration policy in the first place would be not to be distinguishing and saying somebody from Afghanistan is, has different rights to access Australia than somebody from Canada. And the, there is only racism that justifies that. Yeah. Yeah. Pure and simple. In your point of, like, there's some useful stuff that border security does yeah you know you want to have a system where you know parents can't just nick off with children from in, in you know in separation cases and can't just nick off to a country where the children can't be recovered and stuff like you need there are things you need border security to do and yeah stop bart simpson bringing a frog that's going to eat all of our crops there are things like that that need to happen and you presumably want to have a system whereby you can stop you know americans flying over and flooding the country with guns you know there's there's things that are important for our quality of life that, that should happen but the thing of not letting people come here and seek asylum that is not something we need border security to do and it's the only thing that they really give a shit about it's uh, it's certainly the most public thing that they do and i would be very keen to get behind a border force campaign that's about biosecurity and stuff like that and not about excluding people who look different than you and i and as they said the feral thing is that the people who were doing the useful job are now lumped in with the people who are doing the you know black shirt terrifying shit. yeah yeah which i'm sure is only to give those sort of like shining lights within that fascist agenda to the people we can be like well look they do all these helpful productive things under the umbrella of this rank and file nightmare yeah so uh i'm glad that we were able to end our 100th episode on the uh Uplifting yeah. mental image of, of uh, a two-year-old's rotting teeth from our mistreatment of her. Mm. Yeah, And so is Vin. Vin's happy too. <laughs> that said, 100 episodes. Podcast, we've, we've, you know. The half, good. That's a good run. It's the half wonky. That's how wonky made it to 200 episodes yeah, before no, it exploded. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, I assume that everybody else measures their podcasts by virtue of the, you know, in reference to the 200 episodes that something wonky managed. Isn't it, that? It is the international standard, yes. yes. Well, okay. I know it's not the international standard, but I assumed <laughs> that it was the national standard for which your podcasts were, in fact, now judged. Yeah. Well, look, I don't think any of my podcasts have run long enough to start calculating them in relationship to 200 episodes, but uh, if, if and when that happens, I'll be sure to use the appropriate unit of measurement. Well, they're still on the wonky scale. They just might not be a, a full wonky. Yeah, no, they like we're not in integers here we're in in, in, uh, in fractions in any case the purpose of this podcast is not to boost the podcast that died like what two or three years ago and it's, it's also not retired. Uh, that was retired two or three years ago yeah. that's it it, it can be to boost Ginger's podcast because of course you are here <laughs> as a guest host today so if you would like to uh, direct people to your current uh, out, output sure uh, well probably the best place to go is to my website which is gingerbfg.com you can see my or you can listen to my current podcast is one called Key Change which is in a kind of uh, hiatus mode at the moment where I'm doing some lighter on uh, a lighter on series called The Singles Club uh, it's a little bit shorter episodes and a little bit more focused um, because it's easy for me to produce in the short term uh, and I will have some because I'm working on some new shows uh, that I plan to come out some, some narrative focused stuff that I haven't done 
in a real long time. Uh, so that will be coming up. So you'll be able to see all of that at the website. Key Change is a podcast about music. Uh, Key Change uh, focuses on the connections between music and how it works. So things like how Iron Maiden influenced Kelly Clarkson and why Taylor Swift can't say off. Uh, all of those sorts of things. I get it's really, really actually quite granular. I, I, look, I love doing that episode. And the Singles Club stuff is a little bit lighter on because it's just about individual songs and how they work. But uh, I really like Key Change and it's something that I'll come back to uh, once I've got this uh, narrative project off the ground and a little bit better fleshed out. But uh, you can see, you can hear that and all and most of my older podcasts at gingerbfg.com as well. Um, Denise, where can people find you? Uh, you can continue to find me at Deansy on the Twitters. And thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. You are how the podcast has kept going for a hundred whole episodes. Thank you very much. Yeah, slightly, slightly likely there's some sort of half episodes and weird non-numbered episodes too. So, but we don't count them because they ruin the fact that it's hundred and it's <laughs> I'm like a couple Those weeks too late. Content. Yeah, bonus additional. Content. Thank you to all our Patreon subscribers. You are how the podcast kept going, and thank you. And we look forward to uh, producing another hundred episodes with your support. Thank you. Uh, thank you to everybody who's left a positive review on, on the iTunes or whatever the, the Apple Podcast app is these days. <laughs> oh, it keeps changing, but however you can review them, very much appreciated. <laughs> review it widely and freely. Uh, thank you to Robin Gray for the music, Alex Lump for the artwork, and we will see you all uh, next week for episode. Oh my god, it's actually the more more sinisterly uh, named episode, episode 101. 101. Go back to the fundamentals. I'll see you all then. Bye.